Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. What question is driving you this season? Maybe it's something as simple as, am I getting that thing for Christmas that I desperately want? Or maybe it's something a bit more existential. Last weekend, I unintentionally found myself at a cheerleading competition for my eight-year-old niece. And ever since, I have been asking late into the night, could I survive being a cheer dad? It's a terrifying question. And yet maybe the question you have this season is a bit deeper. Maybe it's one of those questions that is difficult to give voice to, but that still haunts us. Questions like, is God ever going to show up? Or am I wanted? Am I loved? Am I valuable? What question is driving you this season? Now, if you don't happen to have a question that comes readily to mind, or even if you do, I invite you to consider this one. What was God doing before he created anything? Now, it sounds like one of those silly questions that monks in the Dark Ages came up with to spice up the seclusion of the monastery, kind of like the infamous, how many angels can stand on the head of a pin, right? No one cares. But a while back, I decided to ask some of my students what they thought God was doing before creation, because that is how youth pastors find wholesome entertainment. Now, probably the most popular answer I got from them was this. God was thinking about what he is going to create. And then when pressed on what he was doing before he began thinking about what he was going to create, the new popular answer was, well, he's thinking about thinking about what he is going to create. And of course, there's always the answer of, well, he was probably creating a hell for people who ask dumb questions, wildly popular. Uh, And then lastly, I got the one you hear is, sounds a bit more holy, which is, well, it's a mystery, so stop believing, or like, please leave me alone, right? Stop asking. And yet, what if, this question of what God was doing before creation actually isn't a silly question that some monks cooked up. What if this question actually determines and outlines the answers to all the questions that we ourselves are facing? Now, early in the 300s AD, a man from Alexandria named Arius thought to detonate this question by claiming that Jesus wasn't truly God. Sure, he was like God, but he must have been created. And so what child is this? Well, according to Arius, maybe an archangel, probably human, but definitely, definitely not God. Now, what's interesting and compelling about Arius is that he actually argued his position from the Bible, unlike previous heresies. And so this was actually, fun fact, the first exegetical conflict within the church. And in centuries previous, Christians had been able to rely on apostolic tradition and the authority of the episcopate in order to stave off heresy. Now, much of Arius' biblical argument came from connecting Jesus to wisdom, which in the book of Proverbs is uh, personified. And in the Greek version that everyone was using in the fourth century, wisdom says this, the Lord created me as the beginning of his works. And so Arius, building upon that, and then introducing a heavy dose of Greek philosophy and really going after this idea that human sons are created, believed that this nonsense of Jesus being truly God actually demeaned God. Again, if he is a son, then he must have been created, just like humans are. 
Because the most important thing about God, according to Arius, was that he was not created. Now, after Arianism spread throughout the empire, the church called a council, perhaps the most famous one in the town of Nicaea in 325 AD, in order to discuss these teachings of Arius. And these teachings were completely firmly denounced. And in fact, the council created a creed called the Nicene Creed to teach that Jesus wasn't just like God or homo homoousion, but that he was of the same being of the Father. He was homoousion, that he was begotten but not made. And with such a firm statement condemning his teachings, you'd think that Arius would have slithered back into the hole from whence he came. However, Arius was popular, clever, and knew how to use both of these things. And so first, Arius was able to persuade several powerful bishops to see things his way. And then in a masterstroke, the heir to the entire Roman Empire was converted to Arianism. But Arius also knew how to go after the normal everyday people in the streets. And so he concocted this scheme where he and his followers crafted these hymns that promoted his belief that Jesus was created, put them to popular tunes like drinking songs, and then marched around town singing at the top of their lungs. And it was truly stirring stuff. We have one Arian hymn remaining to us, and it's called the Thalia. And it's full of gems like this. And so God himself, as he really is, is inexpressible to all. He alone has no equal, no one similar, and no one of the same glory. Or this treasure. He who is without beginning made the sun a beginning of created things. He produced him as a son for himself by begetting him. The Son has none of the distinct characteristics of God's own being, for the Son is not equal to, nor is he of the same being as him. That's probably better as a drinking song, and probably with drinks. Now, when the Arians tried this tactic in the city of Constantinople, they greatly annoyed the bishop of the town. And so he decided to fight off these bands of Arian choirs by making his own choirs who sang proper Christian hymns. And to probably no one's surprise, when these two choirs met in the same street, what started as a song fight became a street fight, and then singing publicly in Constantinople was banned for a time. But once, the Roman emperor died, and his son Constantius, who was Arian, took the throne. It very much looked like, as the great C.S. Lewis put it, as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arianism. For Arianism now held influence with many of the powerful bishops, and now it had the Roman emperor himself and the entire might of the economic and military and social power of the empire. Now during this time, a young man named Athanasius became the bishop of Arius' hometown of Alexandria. And as a child, Athanasius had witnessed the last great persecution of the church by pagan Rome, and he saw the cost of following Jesus. As a teen, he then witnessed this miracle where Christianity suddenly became favored politically within the empire when a man named Constantine became emperor. And then as a young adult, he actually attended the Council of Nicaea as the secretary to the then bishop of Alexandria. And being from Alexandria, Athanasius saw the rise of Arianism and he knew it well. And once he was appointed bishop, he received a lot of attention and pressure from the Arians to convert. However, Athanasius refused to budge. 
Because in his estimation, the teachings of Arius were nothing less than completely catastrophic. They were, uh, to be dramatic, the heresy of all heresies. Because they didn't just deny the person of Jesus, but they actually undermined the very identity of God. This naturally did not go over well with the Arians, and so they concocted several schemes to get Athanasius kicked out of the church, accusing him from everything uh, from desecrating the Eucharist or communion to uh, murdering a fellow bishop named Arsenius and then using his hand to perform black magic. And to prove their point, as the Arians marched around the city of Alexandria singing their hymns, they also carried about an actual human hand to prove their point. And in fact, such was the political sway that the Arians held that they're able to bring Athanasius to trial over murder and of practicing black magic. Now, Arsenius was an actual Arian bishop who they simply put into hiding until they could convict Athanasius and get rid of him. But before the day of the trial, Athanasius' supporters actually discovered Arsenius, and so they smuggled him into the meeting. And so when called to make his defense... Athanasius has his supporters bring up this cloaked figure. And he goes up to his left arm and pulls back his left sleeve, pulls up the right sleeve of his right arm, steps back, pulls back the hood, shows us Arsenius, points at the third hand and says, where did they get the third hand? That was fantastic, guys. You could not make that stuff up. And yet so great was the power of the Arians that even with Arsenius standing in the room firmly alive with both of his hands firmly attached, Athanasius was still convicted of murdering him and using his hand to perform black magic. (laughs) Can't make that stuff up either. And so Athanasius was forced to go on the run. And in fact, throughout his life, Athanasius was exiled five times. Most of his life was actually spent in exile away from home because emperors saw him as a divisive figure, or because the Arians once again claimed political power and wanted to get rid of him. Now, Athanasius' opponents, both then and now, criticize him for being stubborn. Right? Because isn't this just theological opinion? Does it really matter? And for most of his life, Athanasius paid the cost of being slandered and threatened and hunted and forced into exile. Is it actually worth it to debate whether Jesus is truly and fully the Son of God, who was eternally with the Father, begotten, not made? And for Athanasius, he certainly thought it was giving his life for, and throughout the many years on the run and in exile, he crafted these beautiful masterpieces defending the deity of Jesus. Because for Athanasius, his stubbornness wasn't just a matter of opinion or comfort. Instead, it was the dogged pursuit of the only hope we have. Because if Jesus is not fully the Son of God, who has forever been with the Father, then Christianity can offer nothing of substance. And it leaves us primarily with two horrors. The first is that we cannot know God through Jesus. Not truly. And second... We can never be close to God. For if Jesus is Savior, then he can only bring us as close to God as he himself is. But if 
Jesus is the Son of God, of the same being of the Father, begotten, not made, then the hope of Christianity is greater than anything we, have, we could have ever come up with ourselves. And this is worth being stubborn over, even to possible death. And so today we're going to look at these two problems of knowing God and being close to him through Jesus. Now, Arius' main claim right, was that Jesus must have been created. Sure, this happened before creation, and sure, God used Jesus to create everything else, but if Jesus is a son, then he still had a beginning. And if he had a beginning, he couldn't be considered God. Again, in Arius' mind, and in the mind of the great Greek philosophers, the thing that made God God was that he wasn't made. But if this is true, that Jesus actually was made, says Athanasius, then we can't rely on Jesus to truly represent God and help us to actually know him. Because he'd be no better than a human prophet who communicated God's words in human language. Helpful, yes, but still very much distant. Plus, as we look through the rest of the Bible, Jesus and his followers make these radical claims that Jesus communicates something much, much more than just a human prophet. First, Jesus himself says this during a conversation he had with his disciples the night before he was arrested. John 14, partway through verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, one of his disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so just notice some of the claims Jesus is making. That he is the only way to the Father. That if you know Jesus, you know the Father. That if you have seen Jesus, you've actually seen the Father. And then this from one of his closest disciples, John, at the beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so now we got even more claims that Jesus isn't just communicating a message from God, but actually is the message that he was with God in the beginning, that he himself is God, that all things were created through him, that in seeing him we have witnessed the glory of the one and only Son of God, that he alone brings the overabundance of God's grace, that only the Son has ever seen God who has the closest relationship with him and can make him known. And just for one more theological haymaker, this is from the book of Hebrews, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. 
the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus, the Son of God, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being, who not just created everything, but also holds everything together. So what does this mean for us then? First, it must mean that Jesus is fully God in order to make him known at this level. So to represent God, he must be exactly as he is. And so if God is eternal, then the Son must also be eternal. And that is the glory that the Bible claims of Jesus. Now, sure, say the Arians, but again, God can't be made, and human sons are made by their parents, so Jesus can't possibly be fully God, but only a creature God made to be like him. Now, if we start with ourselves, or with creation to understand God, then what we end up with, then, is this unmade being, which Arius liked to call the unoriginate. Punchy name, yes, and probably sounds better after drinking a lot and singing Arian hymns. But... That means that forever before creation, this unoriginate being was alone with only himself. And at some point, he decides to create something, which for the Greeks was a bit preposterous because the material world was decidedly a bad thing. Such a God could also not truly be loving, for he never had another to love and he only became complete once he made something to contrast himself against, and that he's distinct from creation because he alone was unmade. And things like love, joy, and peace aren't things that this God would ever know relationally until he actually made another to relate with. And so for all eternity, this unoriginate God was alone. And if this is true, then my students are probably right that he was probably thinking about what he was going to create in order to make himself whole. Now, the problem with Arius and his God, according to Athanasius, is that he tried to understand Jesus as the Son from the wrong end. Because instead of figuring out God through humanity or through creation, we need to start with what God has revealed. And specifically, he has revealed Jesus who is both Son and eternal God, who fully images the Father. Now, to answer this and try to make sense of it, we're necessarily getting to what seem like weeds, but they're not really weeds. They're actually the most important flower bed in the entire garden. Athanasius' argument came down to when a father begets a son. Right? It's a very particular language, and it's the language in the New Testament, and it's also the language in the Council of Nicaea. And his point is that when a father begets a son, the child is just as human as he is, right? The child cannot be any more or less human than the parent. And so for God to beget something, he must beget what he himself is, eternal, all-powerful, and so forth. And so it's not about creating, and there are specific words to use for creating, but of being, if that makes sense. And more specifically, it describes the type of relationship that God has with the Son. That begetting the Son means sharing life and love for all eternity. Similar to how a fountain always issues forth a stream, and a stream always has to have a fountain. 
so has God always shared his being with the Son. Now, granted, within the Bible, that specific language tends to be used with the Spirit, but it's also helpful for us in understanding Jesus. And so for all eternity, God has shared his life and love with the Son and the Spirit. And that is as far as the Bible is going to take us to understand the relationship between the persons of what we call the Trinity. Now, why does this matter? Okay, it matters because it reveals what is most important about God. If we follow Arius and we start with creation and we start with ourselves, then we create this being called the unoriginate. But if we start with Jesus, we discover the Father. Because if Jesus is the eternal Son, begotten of the Father but not made, it means that God forever and always has been Father and must be Father. And that nothing can be more important about who God is than that. And so the truest and deepest thing that we can say about the Father is that he loves and delights in his Son. This is precisely what is revealed through Jesus' life. At his baptism in Mark 1, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And in Jesus' teaching, John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. In John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. And importantly, in Jesus' prayer for his disciples before his arrest, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now what's interesting is that despite attacking the identity of the Son, the very first charge against Arius at this council of Nicaea was this, that God was not always a father but that there was a time when God was not a father. Because for Arius, to know God, you start with creation, you find the unoriginate. But scripture says you start with Jesus to understand God. And if you take Jesus seriously, and that Jesus is not a crazy person, then he is the son who reveals the father. And if you start anywhere else, you end up with a different God entirely. Only Jesus, as the Son, can make the Father known. Now, the other big catastrophe that Arians created is that believers could never actually get close to God. In fact, it puts Christians in a very weird position. Because if Jesus is created just as human children are, then he can only give us what he himself has. A slightly elevated position that is dependent on obedience. And so his perfection wouldn't depend or would depend on continuing to act perfectly, not because he is innately perfect as God. And so while we could draw near to Jesus, we couldn't actually draw any closer to God because Jesus would be something fully separate from him as another creature. And in Jesus being a perfect human, right, perhaps God would still accept his or his unjust death as a sacrifice for sin but I'm not sure it could ensure our salvation after that. Right? We'd always still be far off from God, still fearing sin and our failures, wondering if we've ever done enough to please God to get to heaven. 
Now, strangely, this is also true if Jesus were simply another God alongside the Father, whom the Father adopted a long time ago. Right? He may have the same divine essence or ooze or whatever you want to call it, but he would still be fully separate from him, just as you and me are fully separate despite our shared humanity. Okay, And this is where the importance of God being one now comes into play. And again, hang with me until the end, because while it seems like something else bored monks cooked up, promise you this is where we broken humans can only find true love, joy, and peace. Back in John 17, right, where Jesus prays for his followers before his arrest and execution, he over and over again talks about the oneness that he has with the Father. So this is John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, referring to the 11 disciples in the room, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Now, this oneness is about unity. Not that the Father and the Son are the same person, as other heresies claimed in the past, but Father, Son, and yes, Spirit are distinct and also inseparable. That they are perfectly united, or to use the language of the creeds, of one being. God is one. And so Father and Son, specifically, are one because you cannot have the Father apart from the Son. Because why do you call someone Father? Because they have to have a child. And what makes someone a son? Because they have a parent. Right, each person of what we call the Trinity, or the divine community, or the Godhead, is inseparable from the others in ways that we as humans cannot truly understand. And the closest we get, according to Athanasius looking at biblical metaphors, is something like light and its radiance, or it's shining out. Right? If you have a light, it's always going to shine out. Or with same with the sun and sunlight. If there is sunlight, there also must be a sun, and vice versa. Now, this only applies to the perfect unity or the oneness of God. And any example by itself is going to break down really quickly for light and its radiance, right? Though inseparable, are not equal, and so forth. And so Athanasius himself counsels that anything more than what Scripture has revealed about the nature, or the nature and relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit is fraught with danger. But understanding the perfect unity that the Son has with the Father and the Spirit is important because remember, we can only be as close to God as He is. The true, overflowing goodness of the gospel is that Jesus offers to share his relationship with the Father, with us, with me, and with you. So look back over this passage from John 17, and we'll go a little bit further. Verse 20, again, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The gospel is not that our sins against God are forgotten because Jesus died and then we continue on in fear of messing up again. The gospel is that we are united to Jesus and we experience the life and the love that he has always known throughout eternity as the beloved son of the father, the son who bound himself to our humanity so that he might bind us to God. And the surety of this is that God raised him from the dead. And so we have eternal life because Jesus is eternal. We need not fear sin because Jesus is sinless and paid for our sins. We do not have to be afraid of death because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We are God's children because he is God's son. And all he has, he shares with us. And all that is ours, he takes upon himself because, as one old dead Christian not named Athanasius put it, he deigns to become one with us. And this happens through his spirit this other person of the Trinity. And we see this in one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's in Galatians chapter four. Paul writes, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now, no God except the God that Jesus makes known would want this. No God but the Jesus makes known could do this. Because it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. This unoriginate, this God of Arius would surely not stoop so low, go so far in order to love. It is not in his nature. But for such a God that Jesus makes known to us, it makes complete and utter sense when the Apostle John tells us, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so what was God doing before he created anything. Before creation, God was loving his son with the spirit, perfectly one, perfectly whole. And this love is what drives him in all that he does to create, not from need, but from abundance to judge, not to prove his power or his rightness, but to bring his wholeness. It's why he forgives. It's why he redeems. It's why he binds us to him so that we might forever know his grace and love as his children. And this is the answer that is the starting place for all of our questions and all of our hopes and all of our longings and yes, all of our fears. And all God asks is that we trust in his son. 
trust that this is who Jesus is, and this is what he wants, and this is what he is doing. The Apostle Paul lays this out beautifully in his letter to the Ephesians. And just pay attention to how many times he talks about us being united with Jesus or being with him or in Christ in some form or another. This is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So do you see why Athanasius never gave up, despite all that it cost him? Because if Jesus is not the true son of God, we can neither know God nor be close to him. But if he is, then the heart of God is perfectly revealed through Jesus and Jesus shares the love and the life he has eternally known as the one and only son of God. We know God as a loving father and we are as close to him as his son whom he has eternally the late J.I. Packer wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. Because that is the basis of our faith. So what can we say to these things? There's a lot of things. I'm going to sum it up, I think, in the first one. If you belong to Jesus, you are so ridiculously secure in the love of God that it is stupid because it is so beyond our comprehension. I'm not even sure I even 1% grasp that to understand such an eternal, powerful love that would send the son to die for me, right? To think that God desires me that much, that he wants to be as close to me as he is to his son. It's incomprehensible. It is stupid. <laughs> and yet in Jesus, if this is true, you are wanted more than you could ever imagine. Not because of the flimsy foundation of your own accomplishments or your beauty or your perfection, but because of God's. That you are loved more than you could ever possibly know. With the very same love which the Father has always loved his Son, who is so important to who he is that he is first and foremost called Father. And that you are more valuable than the most desired treasure. For the Father gave what is most valuable to him, his Son, who willingly took the cross for us, willingly took our humanity, and who sent his Spirit to bring us to the Father. And if you have not yet trusted Jesus, please hear that he is calling you. Not because of anything you've done, not through anything he expects, but because he wants 
you to know him, to know the Father. I want you to become a child dearly loved in whom the Father delights. What shall we say to these things? Paul tells us this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what will you say to these Will you be as stubborn as Athanasius? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your son so that we may not only know you as a loving father, but that we might be close to you as he is. Help us to understand just a little bit more and more to know what that means for us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.